0: Well, good morning, church. It's good to see you this morning. Hope you all are doing well. I got a question for you as we get started today. Who in your life would you say you trust the most? Who's on that list? Who would you consider to be the most trustworthy in your life? And one of the reasons I ask that is because I think we are living in a time where it seems to be that trust is harder and harder to come by, somewhat of a precious commodity, and, and even some of the research tends to suggest that I came across an article that tells us that Pew Research did a survey back in 2019 that 71% of Americans feel that their fellow citizens are less trustworthy today than they were 20 years ago so trust seems to be on the decline hard to come by and so I'm curious who is it in your life that you would say you trust now I know that one of the ways you answer that question is not by just thinking of people that you would consider to be trustworthy. But there's naturally a follow-up question where you have to ask yourself, well, what am I entrusting to them, right? It's not just who do I trust, but what am I trusting them with? And a lot of times when we think about what it is that we're entrusting, the the more important, the more valuable, the more precious it is to us, then the smaller the list of people we trust, right? Let me give you an example. Uh, This past February, I had to get a new car. My previous car finally ran it into the ground. That's kind of always been my philosophy with cars is just drive them until the wheels fall off. And I've realized that's not a great approach. And it comes back to bite you when you really have to buy a new vehicle. And so when it came to February and it was time for us to, to purchase a new vehicle in my home, I thought I'm going to change my philosophy this time around to get this new car. And I'm going to take care of this, right? And I'm going to have all sorts of new rules that everybody in my family is going to have to get used to. So it's, it's the car that gets to be parked in the garage because we only got room for one, because of all the clutter that we're trying to get out of our house right now. So it's the one that's the most protected. When we're in it, there is no eating, right? You don't eat in this new car, right? We're taking good care of it. And really when it comes to anybody else driving it, I'll be honest, I just don't trust them. And, and this reality kind of put a little bit of a tense, tense moment in my marriage recently even, when uh, we had this moment where it realized, or Jennifer realized she was gonna be in a situation where she needed to drive the car, and we were talking about that, and I just kind of confided in her and said, well, you know, I just don't know if I trust you to do that, which was not a good thing to say, right? I mean, and she let me know that's the statement that kind of puts you on thin ice. and she was like, Jer, I'm your wife. And I said, I know. I've seen your car. And that didn't help the conversation at all either. So she's now on the list, okay? She's on the list, and she can drive it. But the point is, is that because it was a new precious item, my list was very small because that's how trust tends to work, right? The list of people that I would trust to take care of my dogs is a lot longer than the list of people that I would trust to take care of my children, right? And so the follow-up question this morning is not just who do you find to be trustworthy, but what is one of the most precious things that you can entrust to someone else? What is the most valuable possession you have? And without a doubt, one of the things that you'd have to say on that list is your life. You get one life, one opportunity to to leave your mark on this world, to to leave your mark on this community, to experience all that this world has to offer you. And so who are you trusting your life to? That's a list that is incredibly small. And what my question obviously leads us to is, are you trusting God with your life? And not just part of it, not just some of it, not just occasionally, but with everything that you are, are you trusting God with your life? What we're talking about is faith, right? That's, that's essentially what it means. Faith is not enough just to say, well, I believe in God, I believe that he exists, I believe that even Jesus died for my sins. No, this, it, it's a faith that says, I'm going to trust him with everything, right? And what does that actually look like? That's what this passage is going to us to consider today is how do we strengthen our faith in such a way so that when we go through this inevitable conflict that Paul's been walking us through, right, that we're going to be able to, in all situations and circumstances, put our faith and our trust in him, right, that no matter what happens, where we look, where we fix our eyes is on the Lord of hosts who guides us through every battle, right? We keep our eyes fixated on the King of kings, this Jesus who is the author and perfecter Of faith. That's what we're going to look at today. So grab your Bibles, turn to Ephesians chapter 6. We've been walking through the book of Ephesians since March, so we've been camped out here for quite some time. But in particular, most recently, the last few weeks, we started with a focus on the armor of God, which is how Paul concludes this letter. It's this climactic moment that leads us to a greater discussion on how do we respond to the inevitable conflict with evil and the broken and sinful world that's around us. So over the last few weeks, we've had a chance to look at this armor and this imagery that drives us into a greater understanding of the importance of truth, the importance of righteousness. Last week, we talked about the gospel, but through the lens of peace. And so today, we continue that journey by looking at this discussion on faith. Now, we're going to read through it together again, and part of what I'm doing here is intentionally reading to you the entire section, 10 through verse 18, so that it just gets embedded in our minds, right? And it just gets... Retained further and further and deeper, but we're just going to look at verse verse sixteen today, which leads us to a discussion on the shield of faith. So follow along with me in Ephesians chapter six, starting in verse ten. It says, "Finally, be strong in the Lord and in His mighty power. Put on the full armor of God, so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms." Take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God, and pray in the spirit on all occasions with all kinds of prayers and requests. With this in mind, be alert and always keep on praying for all the Lord's people. Again, verse 16, in addition to all this, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. All right, so shield of faith, that's our point of conversation today. And the way I want us to embrace this verse and this teaching is to get our minds wrapped around this concept of faith and what that really looks like. And then we're going to weave it into this imagery of the armor of God to get a better understanding of how we apply it in today's context and in today's life. So when you think about faith, it really is trustworthiness. That's why I opened with that question. It is a concept of trust, right? That's really what it's about. But it's not just trust. It's more than just a state of mind. When you really look at the the core definition of this word, it speaks to total dependency, right? And so when we talk about having faith in God, this is more than just, oh, I believe he existed. I believe that Jesus died for my sins. This is a question of total dependency. Is your life oriented in such a way that you have a total dependency on God? What that looks like is that when you go through life, and you have those inevitable worries and concerns, right? You get worried about school, you get worried about your job, your career, your family, your relationships, your finances. What do you do with that worry? What what do you depend on to handle those moments? Right? Do you do you look for your own aptitudes, your own skill sets, your own resources, or do you have an unwavering trust that God is gonna see you through all those worries and concerns? It's a total dependency. And the way that we foster that dependency leads to a change in lifestyle, right? Faith is more than just a state of mind. It's a a way in which we live. It's a life of obedience that reflects that sort of trust. Another way to think of it is that it is our reaction to God's action, okay? And so part of the way that we can begin to explore the level of our faith is to make sure that we never lose sight of what God has done, right? To recognize his actions, right? And, And a lot of times that is what can weaken our faith is our inability to see God's actions. And so let me remind you a little bit of how that has worked through the course of human history, especially through the lens of the scriptures. When you think about God's action in the Old Testament, it typically revealed itself in a couple of ways, covenant and miracle, right? So think about the covenant of Abraham, right? The very nature of the covenant spoke to faith. I'm going to take you to a land that I'll show you. Go to a land that I'll show you. And Abraham, not knowing where he was going in faith, got up and left all that he knew, Right? And not only that, the covenant was what? I'm gonna make you into a great nation. Right, You're gonna have numerous descendants. And so Abraham, in faith, knowing that he and Sarah had yet to have children, had to trust and believe that that was actually gonna happen. But it wasn't just this covenant with Abraham. right? For the many descendants after him, they would look back on that covenant and believe that what God had promised was going to be true. You had to have faith in God's covenant. right? It was also faith through The miraculous, right? A lot of times God's actions revealed himself through a miraculous display of power. You think about the Exodus, right? In the parting of the Red Sea, by faith they walked on the dry ground and by faith they were rescued out of Egypt. And how many times after that did the future patriarchs and and future prophets point back to that moment to say, don't forget how God rescued you out of Egypt, right? It was faith and the miraculous faith in God's power. So you get to the New Testament, and God's action continues to move in the the ideas of covenant and miraculous, but now they are fully exemplified in Jesus Christ, the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. That is his primary, fundamental, life-changing action, is that the fullness of his promises, his covenant, and his redemptive work is going to be found in Christ. And so faith is in the lordship of Jesus right, that through his life, death, and resurrection, we truly believe that there is no other name in this age or in the age to come that is greater than the lordship of Jesus, right? So when you see that action, though we may look for miracles and hope for miracles, and though they may still occur, the primary action that we must react to is what God has done in Christ Jesus. That's the foundation of faith. Right? And so, so when we do that, it leads to a drastic reorientation in our lives because we see Jesus as king. Right? That's, that's where we begin to examine whether or not our faith is truly solid and anchored in the right things. Right? If your reaction is more casual, right, you can have that, that cultural Christianity. Right? I call myself a Christian because where I grew up, parents took me to church I don't know if I want anybody to think otherwise I've never really given it any thought but fundamentally I still live my life however I want to live I pursue what I want to pursue I engage in what a behavior I want to engage in I live for myself all of those different things that is a reaction that minimizes what God has done that's not faith that is not a radical reorientation to the main action of what God has done in Christ Jesus but when we radically reorient our lives, our dreams, our passions, our ambitions, how we see the world, how we make sense of the world, what we pursue, all of that reflects that we believe Jesus is the Lord and we've given our life to him. That's faith, right? So what faith does is it ignites new energy, right? To, to live with that sort of resolve, that sort of resiliency in this world, which is why Paul uses it in correlation to the conversation of this battleground right, that you have this this resolve, this new energy to stand firm. And so the equipment or the piece of armor that Paul uses to help exemplify the importance of faith is a shield, right? And so so what do we know about shields? Fundamentally, they're used for what? Protection, right? At at its basic core, a shield is used for defense. And so fundamentally, you can know from the very beginning of this reading that your faith is going to be what protects you, in a very important and significant way in this conflict with a broken world, right? And so if you think about it from a very literal standpoint, the Roman shield was typically four feet tall, two feet wide. And so you could kneel behind it and have your body completely covered. And so it offers complete and total protection, right? It was a very significant piece of the Roman armor. Now, part of what we need to think through though is that if we're gonna have a conversation about how faith protects us, we need to make sure we have the right mindset about what we mean when we talk about protection, What what do we mean by that, that your faith is going to protect you? Because a lot of times the misconception that emerges is that I'm going to be protected from hardship, right? That that if I have a strong enough faith, I won't have anything bad happen to me, right? It's this message that a strong enough faith is going to lead to health and wealth and prosperity, and a lot of people buy into that. But make no mistake, a shield does not withdraw you from the war. It allows you to endure it, right? So protection is not to say that if you have enough faith, you're not going to have any hard times. You're not going to suffer. You're not going to have any struggles. You're not going to have any obstacles. That's, that's not at all what's being said here. The, the, it's the opposite, that because you're going to have all those things, faith is going to get you through, right? When I, when I was studying Uh, this passage, I came across this one historian that counted uh, this one battle where a soldier got through uh, after the battle and looked at his shield and had more than 220 arrows in his shield. That's what faith does, because the Lord knows life is going to fire an arrow at you over and over and over again. The shield of faith allows you to stand strong, right? So it's protection, but it keeps you to endure the war, not removing you from it. Now, the other thing that we need to consider with this verse that I think gives great clarity to how faith works is by also considering not just the shield, but the arrows that are referenced. What's unique about verse 16 is every other reference to the armor of God in this passage, you don't get an explanation in terms of what it actually does, like what it what it accomplishes for you, right? You, don't, you aren't really told what truth does or what righteousness does or the gospel of peace, but here you're told very clearly, take up the shield of faith because it'll what? it'll extinguish the flaming arrows from the evil one, right? So you were told specifically what faith is going to accomplish for you. And this is is also a very important piece to consider in terms of the common strategies in ancient battlegrounds, right? This was a common practice that an army would take an arrow and dip it in pitch or tar or something that was flammable, and as they got it lit aflame, they would shoot it at their opponent. This was happening even in Old Testament times, a very common tactic, and war strategies. Now here's what's interesting about it. The reason an army would do that, would to fire a flaming arrow, wasn't necessarily just to hope that they would hit and wound the opponent, but because they knew it would land in what was more often than not a wooden shield. And when that flaming arrow hit that wooden shield, it was designed to scare that soldier and force them to put the shield down. And once they disarmed themselves from the shield, they were now more vulnerable and susceptible to more deadly attacks from a spear or sword. That was the whole point. Get them to put down their shield. So part of what Paul is saying here is that you have to anticipate that the attacks from the evil one are designed to weaken your faith, that you would set it aside that you be scared away from it and potentially walk away from God so that you're more vulnerable to more deadly attacks. So I want us to pause there for a moment and give thoughtful consideration to how does that happen? Right? What are some of the assaults that we endure from the evil one that can, that can weaken and challenge our faith? Let me, let me give you a few to consider this morning. Let's start with the idea of temptation. All right, temptation can manifest itself in a lot of different ways. Temptation could lead you towards self-indulgence. Temptation could lead you to disunity, right? You can be tempted to do a lot of things. So let's, let's consider self-indulgence for a moment, right? S- self-gratification, right? So we're tempted towards sex or drugs or money or greed or power or fame, all these different indulgences, right, when we fall victim to those sort of temptations, what are we ultimately saying with our lives? What we're saying is that even if I claim to believe in Jesus, even if I claim to know the gospel, I question its sufficiency, right? That there's something else, the the joy, the fulfillment, the purpose that I found with Christ is not enough. So I want to supplement it or add to it with other pleasures, other desires, other ambitions that I think are gonna make me more fulfilled, more joyful, and give me greater purpose. And the the minute we do that, we've diminished the sufficiency of Christ and our faith and our trust in Christ. So you can go through your whole life. I mean, you could arrive one day and have that fancy house, the wonderful car, the great bank account, and be more vulnerable to the devil's schemes than ever before, ready to be led away in a life of self-gratification and self-worship. Right? You think about temptation, not just to self-indulgence, but temptation to disunity. We've said over and over again over the last few weeks, one of the things that the devil wants to do is cause friction and animosity between brother and neighbor, brother and sister and neighbor, right? That's what he's after. And so we've talked about how we live in a culture where we're constantly divided in groups, different factions, different tribes, different worldviews, and man, when we conflict with one another, we are tempted to hate the neighbor. Right When somebody disagrees with us politically, economically, socially, morally, whatever it is, you can feel that animosity rise, and so we level attacks, and we throw these different arguments, and we do all these different things. that creates disunity, and when that happens, we find ourselves in isolation, because one of the things we're going to talk about later is that faith is stronger in community than it is in isolation. So when we're tempted towards hating a brother or sister, hating the neighbor, it's inevitably going to eventually weaken our faith. So temptation could be one. False teaching is another great one. Another great way for us to have our faith weakened. And we, we buy into this in a lot of different ways, and it's important to know the strategy that is often used. And we can always revisit that by looking at the garden. Right? So you think back to creation, and after God had established the rules, established the order, the promises that he had given to Adam and Eve, here comes the serpent, and here's what he does. He calls, causes que- uh, Eve to question God's word. He says, did God really say you can't eat from any tree in the garden? Which is not at all what God said. He's just getting her to, to question it, right? And so when she corrects him and says, no, we can actually eat from any tree. We just can't eat from that one. If we do, we'll die. Now that she's gotten her to question what God's word says, now he gives her false teaching. And he says, oh, no, 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 no. You won't die. You'll be like God. And that's how it typically works. First thing that the enemy wants to do is get us to question the word of God, right? Is it reliable? Is it trustworthy? Isn't it just written by a bunch of men who have kind of pointed to some of these myths that have been embellished over time? Doesn't it contradict itself? Did God really say those things? And the minute that validity and that authority is questioned, now you're susceptible to false teaching. In fact, you can't really trust what's in here. Here's what truth is. Here's what you should really believe. And the next thing you know, you've fallen victim false teaching. And if you don't know the word of God, I assure you your faith will be weakened. Or you think about other tactics like persecution. Now persecution is one that's maybe harder for us to relate to given our context, but I think it's worth mentioning because it's absolutely a common assault that the enemy uses. 260 million Christians around the world live in a place of high persecution because of their faith. That's one in eight Christians. Right people that we know, brothers and sisters that we may not know, living all over the corners of the globe, who are threatened with imprisonment or rape or beatings or torture, or even the threat of losing their own life. Why? Just because of their faith. And so the tactic is, let me threaten you with physical, mental and emotional harm so that you'll walk away from what you believe. It's another tactic. Think about despair, hopelessness. That's a good one. One of the things that the enemy wants to do is get you to that place where you feel like there's really no hope left. And this can manifest itself in a lot of different ways. One avenue could be through one traumatic event, right? A climactic tragedy that you go through in life. You lose a child. You go through a bitter divorce. You you face a terminal illness, and it just wrecks you into hopelessness. Or maybe it's another avenue where it's like a thousand little things that just continually go wrong. You have struggles at school, you have struggles at work, you have struggles in your marriage, struggles with your children, struggles with your friendships, struggle with your finances, and you just can't catch a break. And it all begins to mount up until you just feel completely hopeless. Or maybe it's the world around you, right? And you turn on the news and we're bombarded with more stories of violence and bloodshed and corruption and animosity and pandemics and division, and it just looks like the world is a mess and it's filled with suffering and you think, man, there is no hope. And if there is a God, regardless of which experience you travel down, you start thinking if there is a God, he's either distant or uncaring and your faith is weakened. And in all these things, it creates doubt, right? The antithesis of faith. Now, we've talked before that doubt is actually a good thing if handled in a healthy way, right? We want to be a place where you can always bring questions. You can always bring concerns. We're not always going to fully understand what God is doing. That's, that's a natural thing in life. But when doubt gets to move to a certain place where we can no longer see God's hand or trust in God's hand, that's when the evil one has us exactly where he wants us. These are the flaming arrows that are constantly being launched at us, along with many others, that are designed to scare you and weaken your faith so that you set it aside. And the moment you do, you're more vulnerable to more deadly attacks. So what makes this verse so incredible is what it tells you this shield does. So check this out. In the Roman army, they literally, yes, it was a wooden shield, but they would cover it with leather and then dip it in water before battle so that when those arrows came, it literally extinguished them. (laughs) And so that soldier was not afraid of this defense mechanism, this protection, catching on fire and having to set it aside. There was no fear in it. That's what faith does. It receives all of those attacks, all of those accusations, and it extinguishes their effectiveness. It neutralizes them. Okay, so how, how? How does that work? Well, the first thing that I would say is you got to consider what is it that stokes trust in your heart or in your life, right? In order for you to trust someone, you have to know what they've said and what they've done, right? I know a lot of people in my life that say they're going to do things and they don't. And when that happens, guess what? I don't trust them, right? So one of the things that we have to do as God's church is never lose sight of what he has said and what he has done. So let me <clears throat> quickly remind you of some very essential promises that help strengthen our faith. Number one, he is going to deal with evil. You see that as early as Genesis 3, right? That that the seed of the woman is going to crush the head of the serpent with his heel. And time and time again, we are told and affirmed through miracles and covenant and promises that there is going to be a day when evil and brokenness and sin is no more. We must never lose sight of what has been said for that. Number two, one of the other promises, God is gonna call for himself a people, right? That takes you back to the very covenant of Abraham that continues on even through the New Testament and the promises of Christ, right? That he is calling for himself a royal priesthood, a holy nation, sons and daughters, right? He is choosing people to be with him. What's another promise that he has assured us? That though we are going to face these challenges and these, stra- these struggles, he is going to send a Messiah, a Messiah and a Savior, right? We know what he said and we know what he has done because when we look at Jesus, we see that child that was born, that son that was to be given, that this Jesus of Nazareth was accredited by God by many signs and wonders, that he was handed over to the hands of sinful and evil men according to God's foreknowledge and plan so that they would put him to death on the cross because God was going to set him free from the agony of death because it was impossible for death to keep its hold on him. And so be assured of this today, church. God has made this Jesus both Lord and Messiah. He is King of kings and Lord of lords. And the fourth promise, he gives you the hope of eternity, that God so loves this world, He has given His one and only Son, that whoever believes, has faith in Him, will not perish, but have everlasting life. So we can look and see that the wages of sin is death, but we can stand up and say, Where, O oh, death, is your sting? Where, O oh, death, is your victory? The victory belongs to our Lord Jesus Christ. We never lose sight of what God has done and what he has said. Now, how do we continually foster that? How do we make sure that that faith is there to help extinguish those arrows when they come flying our way? Fundamentally, what I would tell you this morning is it's relationship, two ways, relationship with God and relationship with each other. When, When you think about trust and faith, it is very difficult to have faith in someone you don't know. Very few of you, when I asked you that question earlier, who do you trust the most, listed a stranger. Whoever filled that list for you was probably somebody that you were very close to, that you had a strong relationship with, because that's how trust works. If you wanna constantly be reminded and know the promises of God, you have to invest in that relationship through prayer and through the word. The more you spend your day, your time in prayer, you allow his spirit to, to speak to your heart, your soul, your mind, you will be stirred and reminded of these truths. The more you pour into the scriptures and not just read it as a checklist and not just occasionally refer to it, but feast on it, you'll be reminded that he doesn't lead you into temptation, he delivers you from evil. You'll be reminded that that God's word is true, that we don't need to just follow whatever our itching ears want to hear but to commit ourselves to sound doctrine right we will be reminded that blessed are the persecuted because they will inherit the earth and that if Christ was persecuted so will we we don't need to worry about despair because we know that though we may have mourning with joy we will find our sorrow being turned into dancing and that doubt doesn't need to let us be tossed back and forth on the waves like the oceans, but that we can believe in our hearts and confess with our mouths that Jesus is Lord and we will be saved. The more and more we press into his scripture, we press into prayer, and we foster that relationship, we will cling to these promises and our faith will stay secure. It's not just relationship with him, it's relationship with one another. Because here's what makes the Roman shield so cool was how they used it in battle, right? Nobody wants to go to war alone, right? One of the things that we've consistently pointed to through the course of this series is that we are part of God's army. We're part of his people. You have people on your left and your right that you were fighting with. And so one of the tactics that the Romans used was they they would get in this defense position where they would interlock their shields, both in front, above, and on the side, and it literally created an almost impenetrable wall. That's what faith does. Right? So the more that we gather together in honesty in transparency about our hardships, about our struggles, about our questions, and we open up about these, these things that are coming against us, what happens is, is that we look next to the people that are around us and we see this flaming arrow that's extinguished by their faith. We see somebody overcome the grief of losing a child. We see somebody overcome a bitter divorce or, or stay strong in the face of a terminal Illness, and because of their faith, it encourages us. Or maybe it's our faith and our shield that helps absorb that blow that was coming to them. And because they've seen the way that we've handled tragedy and hardship and struggle, our faith encourages them. But make no mistake, the more we do this together, the greater our chance of resolving and keeping the faith. That's what the shield was designed to do. And so with that being said, I want to remind you this morning that we're surrounded by a great cloud of witnesses of people who show us what it means to have faith. And that's kind of how I want us to transition here towards the end. In fact, I was thinking about it. It would almost be irresponsible of me to talk to you about faith and not at least refer to a Hebrews 11. It's one of the most incredible chapters that we have in all of the Scripture. And and it gives us pictures of all the different ways that faith might manifest itself. And so I'm going to paraphrase a few excerpts from chapter 11 as a reminder for us this morning of how other people's faith and our own faith can encourage each other, right? Think about some of the examples that we have from old, right? The patriarchs that have gone before us. Hebrews 11 tells us, By faith, Abraham, when called to go to a place he would later receive as his inheritance, obeyed and went, even though he did not know where he was going. By faith, Moses chose to be mistreated along with the people of God rather than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He regarded disgrace for the sake of Christ as of greater value than the treasures of Egypt. By faith, the people passed through the Red Sea as on dry land. By faith, the walls of Jericho fell. I love this paragraph. What more shall I say? I do not have time to tell about Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, about David and Samuel and the prophets who through faith conquered kingdoms administered justice and gained what was promised, who shut the mouths of lions, quenched the fury of flames, and escaped the edge of the sword, whose weakness was turned to strength, and who became powerful in battle and routed foreign enemies. You know people like this, right? You know people in your life whose faith is so strong, it's like they are just used in mighty and significant ways, right? Like they're conquering kingdoms. They're, They're metaphorically shutting the mouths of lions and quenching the fury of the flames. I think about people like this. I think about a friend of mine who's a pastor in India, Pastor Daniel. I mean, every time I'm with that guy, I'm encouraged by his faith. He'll talk about his church in in West Delhi and the things that they're doing in the slums. He'll talk about his work with Bible translation because his, his people, his people group, 19 million unreached people don't have the scripture in their language and how he's worked to get it translated into the hands of his people. He'll talk about the orphanages that he started and how he's caring for these incredible children. And even recently, in one of his more recent visits, as the persecution there has has stepped up, he showed me a letter that was targeting him and his arrest. And in every situation, through my whole relationship with him, when I've known him, he says it all with a smile. He doesn't have all the answers. He's like, I don't know how we're going to change that slum. I, I don't know how we're going to get it translated. I don't know where we're going to get the money. I don't know how we're going to care for these kids in this situation. I don't know if they're going to be able to arrest me or not. But every step of the way, he has unwavering faith. And he is a giant in the kingdom of God. And I watch that and it inspires me. Hopefully you have people like that in your life. Maybe that's you. We're surrounded by these sorts of witnesses, and we should never lose sight of them. But Hebrews 11 reminds us, it's not always getting power to rout foreign armies. Because sometimes faith is gonna be exactly what we need in our darkest days. Because there were others. Others who were tortured, who faced jeers and flogging, chains and imprisonment. They were put to death by stoning, they were sawed in two, they were killed by the sword. They went about in sheepskins and goatskins, destitute, persecuted, and mistreated. The world was not worthy of them. They wandered in deserts and mountains, living in caves and holes in the ground, and they were commended for their faith. (laughs) You know, people like that, destitute, broken hurting. Maybe that's you. And that's often those seasons and those places where faith is needed the most. And We can be encouraged by these sorts of witnesses as well. I want to give you another example. I've told you before about Anthony Ray Hinton. He wrote the book The Sun Does Shine. I was referencing it more than a month ago about this incredible story where he was falsely accused of a crime in 1985-86, a, a victim of racial prejudice, corruption, and ultimately wrongly convicted, and then ended up spending 30 years of his life in solitary confinement on death row before he was ultimately released and set free because of DNA evidence that came to light many years later so imagine that. Okay, that to me is kind of a modern-day equivalent of what we just read in the last part of Hebrews 11. All right, 29 years old. Don't just think of it as a story. Imagine if this was you, 29 years old, falsely accused, wrongly convicted because of your poverty, because of your skin color, and your whole life taken away as you were suffering through solitary confinement. Talk about a place where you would need faith. That's exactly what got him through. And through his story, he talks about how his relationship with God and his relationship with others helped him get through some of those darkest days. And one particular relationship that was so encouraging to him was his mother's, who taught him, who, who showed him the way of faith, who impressed upon him these values and these principles. And so when he goes through this darkest moment in this particular story, I'm gonna read to you. It's a, it's a lengthy excerpt, but I think it's important because it's so powerful. On one of his darkest days, 16 years after being wrongfully accused and sitting there in that prison, he talks about this assault that he feels and he hears, this this hopelessness, this despair, and we get an insight to how faith carried him through. It was September 22nd, his words, it was September 22nd, 2002, when the captains of the guards came to my cell. Ray, I got some news for you. I stood and looked at him standing in my doorway and I felt my heart begin to pound. It wasn't news of my release. I'd seen enough death in there to know the way it showed on a man's face. He had death on his face. And even before he said it, the screaming began in my head. It's your mom, Ray. She died today. We just got word. I'm sorry. The other guards and I want to offer our condolences. I didn't say a word. The screaming in my head was so loud, I just wanted him to leave so I could put the pillow over my ears. I turned my back to him and walked a few feet to stand over my bed. I leaned over at the waist, my palms resting on the bed, and I wondered if I was gonna pass out. I cried quietly at first. And then it was as if my body were possessed because it started shaking so hard I couldn't even hold my hand in front of my face. Maybe I was having a seizure, I didn't care. I felt my stomach turn over. She was dead. I couldn't understand what kind of world this was now. I was nothing, I was nobody. I started sobbing the deepest cries I've ever felt. It was like my body was turning itself inside out. She had died and I wasn't there. I couldn't live with that. I couldn't even breathe with that thought. I wasn't there. I was here. I didn't get to hold my mom as she passed. I would never get to hold her again. I couldn't tell her I loved her, I couldn't tell her goodbye. When are they gonna let you come home, baby? I could hear her voice. Soon, Mama. I'm gonna be home soon. I had lied to my mom. I hadn't come home, not soon, not ever. I would lied to her and she had died without me there to take care of her. I pushed my face in my pillow and I let the tears fall. None of it mattered anymore. Brian, the hearing, whether I lived or I died, getting out of here, what did it matter? My mama was dead. I wasn't gonna recover from this one. I was Ray Hinton, a condemned man on death row who couldn't convince anyone he was innocent. I lay on my back for hours, and then I heard a deep voice say, the only person who believed you were innocent is gone. I nodded and the voice continued, so why keep fighting? Why let them execute you? Take away their power. There's nothing to live for now. Let Brian Stevenson save someone else. There's no use in staying here. They're never gonna let you leave. You're just poor and dumb and no one cares if you live or die. They're gonna kill you one way or another. On and on the voice went and I listened to it. I listened to it until it took me to the darkest place I'd ever been. Darker than those first three years on the road. My mother was always the flicker of light in those years but now there was nothing but darkness, flatness, It was like all light ceased to exist. There was no hope. There was no love. My life was over and I knew this in the quiet way you know some things to be true. I had failed. There was nothing left inside of me to keep going. I didn't want to live. I didn't deserve to live. I didn't have the strength to live. They had won and I was okay with that. I was ready to go. Boy, I didn't raise no quitter. I heard my mother's voice loud and sharp. I didn't raise a quitter, and you're not going to quit. I looked around my cell in the darkness. I didn't believe in ghosts, but I could hear my mama's voice as play as the day is long. You're going to get out of here, and you're going to keep fighting. I'm tired, mama. I want to be with you. They want to kill me, and I don't want to give them that chance. There's a time to live and a time today to die. This is my time to die. No use crying about it. You knew I had cancer. You didn't want to talk about it, but you knew. I started crying again because she was right. This isn't your time to die, son. It's not. You have work to do. You have to prove to them that my baby is no killer. You have to show them you are a beacon. You are the light. Don't you listen to that fool devil telling you to give up. I didn't raise no child of mine to give up when things get tough. Your life isn't your life to take, it belongs to God. You have work to do, hard work, and I'm gonna talk at you all night long if I have to, and all day and all night again, and I will never stop until you know who you are. You were not born to die in this cell. God has a purpose for you. He has a purpose for all of us. I've served my purpose. So now you wipe them tears, Ray, and you get up and you get in service to someone else. There's no time to be crying about yourself. There's no cause to be listening to the devil's voice in your head telling you that nothing matters. It all matters. You matter. You are my baby. and You matter more than anything in the world. Okay, mama. Okay. That's faith. And I use it as a witness to you and I. Because if Anthony Ray Hinton can find faith in a moment like that, and so can we. And it's the voices of those that we know and that we love who can speak into those darkest moments and tell us that truth that presses us into the hope of the gospel. It all matters. You matter. So here's how I want to close. I want you to close your eyes for a moment. And I want you to think about whatever it is that you're facing, whatever hardship, whatever struggle, whatever trial, because I know every single person in here has them. It's impossible not to. What are the things in your life that are challenging your faith? What arrows are flying your way? I want you to see them. I want you to think about them. And then I want you to look beyond them. I want you to fix your eyes on Jesus, King of kings, the Lord of hosts. I want you to be reminded of the truth we find over and over again in the Psalms, that God is your refuge, he is your shield. I want you to cling to what he has said and what he has done knowing the promise that there will be a day where evil is no more. I want you to know that he has called you his son and his daughter. I want you to know that he has sent you a savior, a king, who loves you fiercely and has given you the promise of eternity. I want you to throw off this sin that's so easily entangles and run the race that God has set out for you. I want you to fix your eyes on Jesus. Consider him who endured such opposition at the hands of sinful men, who for the joy before him endured the cross, scorning its shame so that you won't grow weary and lose Pierce your eye on the King of kings, this Lord of hosts, who will lead you through the fiercest battle. Fix your eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith. Father in heaven, we love you. And we pray that you would watch over us in this moment. I pray for each and every one of us that have gathered here today Be it online or at home, wherever we are, and thinking through the things that are before us, God. We trust in you. (laughs) We give you our life. We give you our hope. Where else would we go, Father, but to turn to you? And so, for those, Father, who have any sort of hardship or struggle or concern that they have been facing today, Father, I pray that they would be encouraged by the promises. that you have revealed in Christ, that they would be encouraged by this great cloud of witnesses that is around them here in this moment, for those who have gone before them and who go after them, Father. That we collectively as your church and as your army will stand boldly and declare that we belong to you. We fix our eyes on our King. May you perfect our faith, in Jesus' name, amen and amen.